Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Lashing Out Podcast on the Nittany Sports Now Network. I am joined by Kevin Quigley and J- and Joe Smelter. I apologize for playing all kinds of music. We're trying a new situation where we're go- we're going on YouTube and and going all over a little high tech, so you guys can see our faces and our beautiful backgrounds. I'm going to apologize now. This is not where I live. I do not have a baby grand piano. Um, but again, I slept on that couch though when I was up there. Yeah, yeah, the, that would be. I would have slept on that couch too. I still might actually sleep on that couch, but but lo and behold, we are trying the video parse portion of this. You'll be able to listen to this on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. But you'll also be able to watch us on YouTube as well, gentlemen. Penn State won in a beautiful game for the Mount, or for the Nittany Lions, and I think what was important is. That's now three weeks in a row where we've seen an evolution and 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 growth from Drew Aller. Yeah, and after the performance against Ohio State, this offense needed to change. It needed to spark, and what happened? They started stretching that Maryland defense both left, right, and up and down the field. Maryland, they're trying to get rid of that tendency. I think the the broadcast said they're sixty percent runs on first and second down. I don't know how many I don't know how many first downs that they threw on. They're trying to break that tendency. The number one thing you don't want as an offense is tendencies and predictable tendencies. And if you run 60% of the time on first down, defenses sell out to stop the run on first down. We'll start start throwing. And they did that, and he's more comfortable. They were talking to the broadcast about he's running an eight-yard shotgun in high school. And he's not running an eight-yard shotgun, but they let him just sling it. And I think we saw the evolution of Dante Cephas, too, and he you start getting a second formidable wide receiver out there. Good things start happening. Yeah. And I talked to uh, Drew Hour. Well, a lot of people talked to him after the game as every week, but uh, I was one of them. And I asked Drew if he felt that he played his best college football game at Maryland, which I think the three of us agree that he did. And Drew's not the type to say, yeah, that was my best game. But the answer he gave was pretty telling. And he talked about how, much looser he's been and he specifically pinpointed how loosely he's been playing since the end of that Indiana game. I thought he was pretty dang good against Indiana in general, aside from that interception, but that interception, I I think it's very hard to argue right now that that wasn't a good thing for him. I think people in the fan base kind of wondered should Drew not intentionally throw a pick, but would it be beneficial for him to get that first pick out of the way so he could not be worried about it anymore. And look what happens. He throws a pick in, albeit a very bad spot, but the next drive hits KLS on a deep ball for a touchdown and then definitely carries that over uh, into Maryland. Final stats, 25-34, 240 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Pro football focus had our as Penn State's highest-rated player on offense for the second week in a row. And for context, of the 17 players that played offensively against Ohio State, Drew Aller had the 16th highest grade. So he was, simply put, he was one of Penn State's worst players against Ohio State. And I think we didn't need PFF to tell us that. Drew would admit it. Um, We watched the game. That wasn't his best effort. That was probably his worst game at Penn State. But he played his best game yesterday at Maryland. And 51-15 speaks for itself. Drew Aller was awesome. We'll talk about the rest of the offense, and we'll talk about the defense, but that was Penn State's best game as a team, most complete game as a team this season. It's, I would say it's come at a pretty good time with Mighty Michigan looming. 
That's that's a great point. You know, you mentioned the interception, and the interception I think was huge, and we talked about this at length. He was trying to be perfect. He was just trying not to make mistakes. And when you play like that, you, you play tight, and you get that type of performance that he had against Ohio State. And, and he did not look great against Ohio State by any means. It was not pleasant. But even the most competent of performances probably would have led to, you know, a, a win for, for Penn State. But now – they're, they're clicking once again. They had the little get-right game against Indiana. Now they're back. Kevin and I talked about this in the preview show. I expected the defense to play dominantly, and we'll talk about that later. But this offense, just being able to take advantage of Maryland the way that they did, I thought was the most impressive thing. You mentioned Dante Cephas. Cephas and his emergence with the absence of Trey Wallace – that is going to be huge. That's the first time really Dante Cephas has been an impact player or really a go-to player at any point this season. But having him in that fold, now that he seems to be comfortable in the offense, comfortable in his role, you know, it's no shock that, that Franklin rolled him out there the other week or the other day to talk about talk to the media after practice. No, and this was really Cephas's coming out party. This was only the third time this season that Penn State has had two re- wide receivers with six or more catches in a game. The other time was Iowa, and the first time was Delaware. So Drew has a formidable second target now. And Cephas wasn't just making average Joe catches. They're not just catches to the numbers. They're not just right in front of his face. They're The first one's over his shoulder as he's going out of bounds. The second one's over his other shoulder as he's going out of bounds, both for touchdowns. And it's just like, you could just throw that guy up the ball. And that's what we've been talking about all season long. It's like Drew only had trust in KLS. He had a little bit of trust in Trey Wallace. He lost all of his trust in McLean. He hasn't built that up with Caden Saunders or Amari Evans or anybody else except maybe the tight ends. But now he has that second wide receiver where he's like, I can throw that ball up on 50-50 because I know he's going to come down with it. Or it's not going to be a mistake if it's slightly underthrown or if it's thrown slightly wide out of bounds. Like, this, I, I, I don't think I can say just how important it is to get a true second wide receiver for Drew. I mean, it's QB confidence. It's, it's things he hasn't had all year long, and it's you're doing against a formidable, formidable opponent. Yeah, and no disrespect to Trey Wallace, but the number two receiver is Dante Sivas' spot now, and unfortunately, I. Please don't take this as speculation, but Trey Wallace's injury was such that could potentially be a season ender. So Cephas might have that number two spot almost by default. But I think even if Trey Wallace does come back, Cephas is still the guy. I I think he showed more in that game. Uh, I don't want to say then Trey Wallace has showed all season because Trey Wallace was pretty darn good against West Virginia. But um, you look at what Cephas' body of work, uh, he has that pedigree that Trey Wallace really doesn't. Trey Wallace was unproven coming into this season, and he's still unproven much of that due to injury, but this is a guy that was a 1,000-yard receiver at the D1 level at Kent State. You can talk about downplay to Mac all you want, but Sivas had really all the intangibles coming in, and it just, for one reason or another, lack of production, uh, lack uh, lack of showing the coaches things in practice, a misusage on the coaching staff, um, whatever it may be, it just wasn't working for Sevis, but it definitely started working against Maryland had six catches, only had 11 all year in the eight games before that. 
And that was a great point, Kevin. You mentioned about 50-50 balls. You look at Dante Sivas, he's not a guy you look at and think, this is somebody who's going to be grabbing those 50-50 balls. He's only six feet, right? You think about 50-50, you think more guys like Malik McLean and people of that ilk are a little taller. This guy's only six feet, which that, that's a lot taller than, well, we're all pretty short. That's taller than all of us. But for a receiver, that's not really necessarily an advantage when you think of making the type of touchdown catches that Sivas made yesterday. But he made the catches. Drew did a great job throwing those fades. And, yeah, that was a coming out party for Dante Sivas. It took longer than I think anybody would have wanted, but it's here now and it's coming at an absolutely great time because for a while, the whole year really, it was Keandre Lambert-Smith and a who's who of who's that, but Dante Sivas solidified himself as Penn State's number two against Maryland for sure. The the good thing is they've got the top two receivers. They've got KLS and, they, and they've got Dante Sivas, it seems now. Now, if he's able to do that against Michigan, that's great. But the utilization of the tight ends, I mean, we, we came into the season thinking about talking about Theo Johnson and how good Theo Johnson is, and he is very, very good. But the emergence of Tyler Warren has been welcome as well. Tyler Warren, I mean, we predominantly knew him from the Warren cat, right, last year. But but he has emerged as Drew Aller's go-to guy. There's nobody that he wants to throw it to more than Tyler Warren, and he is Mr. Reliable, and I think that's huge. You know, we, we mentioned about Dante Cephas and, and the inconsistencies there, but the guy that has been the most consistent this year has been Tyler Warren. Yeah, and we I said talking about breaking tendencies twice on fourth and short, they go past to Tyler Warren and that motion play at the end, I think it was end of the third quarter or beginning of the fourth quarter to convert that key fourth and one. I mean, that was just a spectacular play design. The announcers talked about it, just getting the snap off before any of the defense can really uh, catch up with, with the assignment. And it was just, it was just so fast. It's getting the defense spread out from a stagnant formation. And it's fourth and one. You've got Katron Allen. You've got Nick Singleton, Khalil Dinkins in the backfield. Who passes there? No one. And Penn State hasn't passed there all season. So they finally get that done. And I'd really like it. And funny enough, it took eight games or nine games, whatever it is, uh, for uh, Khalil Dinkins to have a catch that did not result in a touchdown. So, yeah, it was bad streak broken. It wasn't a touchdown, but all of Khalil Dinkins' catches have been on fourth and one. Uh, that's I'm, I'm going to start to call him Mr. Fourth and One. I don't know if that's going to get on any Nittanyville posters. Uh, but, yeah, all of these tight ends, all, the three of them, and there's some pretty talented tight ends that aren't getting playing time. I don't really know what Jerry Cross's deal is. Andrew Rapelier has seen uh, some typical freshman garbage time, and he's done well. He His block helped uh, Theo score against – UMass, but talking about the free that are getting the most time, they all these guys bring different things to the table. I agree with Jared that Warren is becoming Drew Hours' go-to guy. Uh, Theo Johnson is a physical spe- specimen. He's a beast. I think he's the best athlete of the group, and Khalil Dingens is a great athlete, too, and he's become a guy that um, is very useful uh, blocking in that T formation and blocking in general. I think he threw a block on Katron Allen's touchdown, if I had that right. And then in those fourth and short situations, he's a guy that Drew Hour is comfortable throwing the ball to, and Penn State is comfortable calling a pass play on fourth and one because they got a reliable option in Khalil Dingham. So 
yeah, Ty Howell's done, I think, a great job overall. And this tight ends group might be the best one in college football overall. It's that good. It's definitely deep. But just speaking of, of depth, we're going to turn it over to the second segment when we come back here from this break. But we're going to talk a little bit more about the Penn State defense who had themselves one hell of an afternoon against Maryland on Saturday. Welcome back to the Lashing Out Podcast on the Nitty Sports Now Network. They are Joe and Kevin, and I am Jared, and we make up the fake Jonas Brothers for Penn State football and its analysis. Penn State's defense, and I'm going to quote, you know, um, Ted Lasso here and and what I think Tony Rojas was saying uh, on Saturday afternoon, but I love football. There is not a player that had a probably better game in the limited amount of time he was on the field than Tony Rojas did against the Terrapins on Saturday afternoon. And it was so much fun to watch. Watch his evolution as a player this year. He hasn't played as much as we would have thought, I think. But when he is on the field, man, he is a game changer. What a game for Tony Rojas. Very limited snaps, as you mentioned. But true freshman on the road in a big-time conference game where Penn State's kind of reeling. You lose to Ohio State, tight game against Indiana. Like, this game matters. You got Michigan next week. He gets his one tackle, which was a sack. Gets a forced fumble on that sack. And then it's the interception. I mean, true freshman on the road, Big Ten college football. It's a big stage regardless of who the opponent is. And he got in and made his impact. They only gave him, what, 15, 20 staffs maybe? And made three impact or two impact plays. Pro Football Focus said he had seven snaps. Oh, so, yeah, of those seven snaps, one of them was an interception, another one was a strip sack. Uh, pretty good. That's what you call making the most of your reps. And I remember talking um, on Media Day with uh, one of my colleagues, Mark Wogenrich, about Tony Rojas. And it was either he or I, I think it was me, that said, if this guy doesn't get a lot of playing time, that is a great sign for Penn State's defense because that means it has a lot of capable players, right, coming back. And if a guy like Tony Rojas, uh, who really – I am not, I don't want to compare him to Abdul Carter, but as far as the 2023 class goes, he was arguably – would he say he was had the most buzz coming in um, to the season of the true freshman? I think there's definitely an argument to be made for that. Uh, but – Obviously, Penn State's defense uh, has a lot of weapons, and you don't really need to throw a true freshman into the fire uh, like you did with Carter last year and like you've done uh, with some guys in years past. But, yeah, uh, I think Tony Rojas is a player that Penn State uh, doesn't need too much right now, and I mean that as a good thing because, as we talked about, this defense, I still think it has a case for the best defense in America. But, you got to start thinking on even when you're in the thick of competing for still faint ish hopes, but hopes nonetheless of a Big Ten championship college football playoff in November when you're in a season like this. Uh, it's never, it never hurts to start thinking about the future. It might hurt the coaching staff a little bit to start thinking about that. But as far as people to talk about Penn State, it's never a bad thing to talk about what we might see in the years ahead. And next season, 
Abdul Carter, assuming he says a linebacker, which I think he will. There's people who want him to move the edge, but we can talk a lot more about that later. But uh, if Carter says a linebacker, which is likely, uh, he and Tony Rojas could be the new Carter and Curtis Jacobs. There might not be too much of a drop off there. And, and that's a good thing too. Like, and you mentioned it, they don't need him. That's a, that's a good problem to have. You have a Bill Carter, you have Curtis Jacobs. Um, you have guys like Dom DeLuca. You, your defense is set. Your defense is doing an excellent job regardless. And yeah, the hype around Rojas, I think was, was very big. And we saw that early in the season, but now the big thing is when he's on the field, he makes an impact that I think speaks volumes, but the biggest thing is those guys around him are making any, a, a big impact as well. Johnny Dixon has been playing well. Um, you know, Daquan Hardy has had himself a string of really, really good football games, but they're just playing really good football as a unit. And the best part about this is they're defensively up front playing without Chop Robinson, one of their leaders. This is, you know, not as I don't want to compare apples to oranges here, but when PJ Mustafer went down a couple of years ago and with his injury, you know, things changed up front, but they're ha- they haven't missed a beat with Chop Robinson out with, the, with what I assume is the concussion. Now, and Tony Rojas really helped build his hype up when he came in and enrolled in January and was the star of the spring game. And Joe, I uh, when he had that interception, I was like, man, that dude could be a number eleven. And not too yeah. often, in state's defense have two number 11s uh, or two number 11 caliber type players there. And yeah, Chop wasn't there. Adisa really stepped up. Deny had a big game uh, on the defensive line. And Penn State's defense, the ultimate defensive depth. They have 17 players this year with a sack. There's no, other, no other defense in the country has 17 players with a sack. Like, I, I'd be surprised if there's another team maybe at 12. Maybe even tens of threat. So they've been able to roll everybody in, and it's this is yeah. going to team absolutely loaded. And we talked about the 2023 class. I think Rojas was the most hyped player, at least defensively, coming into the season. But I think during the season, Jamil Lyons has gotten a lot of talk from coaches, from teammates, from everybody. That's a guy that's been impressive, and he was playing in the first quarter of Saturday's game. And in a defensive end room, as loaded as this, even without Chop, you still have Adisa Isaac, you still have Amin Vanover, you still have Jariah Fisher, Jariah Fisher, excuse me, you still have Denai Dennis Sutton, who is going to be an All-American. For a guy like Jamel Lyons to get early playing time, even without Chop, that's big. And that's another, we're talking about the future, that's another guy uh, that definitely, he could fight for a starting spot next year. Um, but, you mentioned it, Kevin. This hats off to Dion Barnes and whoever else is helping uh, with the edge rushers because there is something in the water there. This is definitely when you lose a guy like Chop, and even going into next year when they'll be losing both Chop and Adisa Isaac, there is still so so much talent um, on the edges for Penn State, and the defensive tackles have been a question mark. Although I think. Zane Durant has helped um, answer a lot of those questions this year with the way he's played. I think Devon Elise has played well, but um, the Ed, the guys on the edge, man, that's that sticks out to me almost more than anything uh, with this Penn State defense. And there's a lot that sticks out about Manny Diaz's group. One of my favorite statistics from Saturday's game is that Maryland had 
negative 49 yards rushing. Now, in college, sack yards do count towards rushing totals. However, no Maryland runner had a carry longer than four yards. Think about that. On the college football platform, no single running back had a carry longer or a rush longer than four yards. That is impressive. Yeah, and the sack adjusted yard rushing yard total for Maryland. So you you subtract all the sack yards out of there, minus two. So they didn't have positive total rushing yards with their actual running backs. I think it was Penn State's best performance since like the 1950s on the run defense. Going into the season, we are concerned. Can this team stop the run? That's why in the offseason, I was like, there's no way in hell they could beat Michigan because they can't stop the run. They couldn't stop the run like a nosebleed last year. And they sold out to stop the run against Maryland. Talia started the game 17 for 17, and he finished 12 of 22. Manny Diaz gave the Mar- the Penn State treatment to Maryland. Everyone teams say, hey, Drew Aller, go beat us. Manny Diaz said, hey, Talia, go beat us. We're going to stop everything else. And I think Penn State's defense was even more successful at stopping the run than other teams have been against stopping Penn State's run. And it's just, why was, why was Talia so successful? Manny Diaz was blitzing Johnny Dixon and Kalen King on the same play. You're, 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 you're taking your two top cover guys and throwing them at Talia and saying, Hey, if you could beat this pressure, go right ahead and throw it all day long. And he had success early, but Penn state didn't give up any points. They give us seven points. Yep. And what is, what does that prove? A short passing game is not a substitute for a running game. I've always believed that yesterday's game proved it. And those seven points, Maryland would not have scored a single point that mattered yesterday. Had Liam kicked Clifford, not rough the punter on fourth and 21, which I want to talk about that point a little bit too, because in the moment I was thinking everybody else, I'm like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that on fourth and 21? And I still stand by that, but he came pretty darn close to blocking that punt. And I think in a vacuum, I like the aggressiveness there. I think if he does that in almost literally any other situation, I would defend it more. But come on, man. You just can't be that way on 4th and 21, especially with Penn State up 14 and the offense playing as well as it was. The His number one, point hold on, on the hold block. On, hold, on, hold on. The number one rule in punt blocking is you have to make contact. If you're going to go straight at the punter, the number one rule is make contact. And if you yep. don't, it's the worst play ever. And to do that boneheaded shit on 4th and 21 – inexcusable and that's why he didn't have a single offensive staff yesterday and the thing the thing Sorry. with that is when you're blocking the punt your aiming point has got to be where you're where you think the ball is going to be not the punter and unfortunately it ends up being a situation where he rusts the kicker rusts the punter and lo and behold they find a way to score but at the end of the day when it's fourth and 21 you can afford to be a little aggressive and if that results in a bonehead play or or a, or a missed opportunity, then so be it. It, yeah, it, it took away maybe a shutout or or maybe some some other things. But at the end of the day, what matters most is Penn State's defense is playing some really good football. Penn State's offense is playing some really good football, and there's some there might be some magic against Michigan here coming up Saturday at Beaver Stadium. But that's why they play the game. So we're going to talk a little bit more about a, a bunch of different things uh, around the top 25, including how Michigan did against Purdue. 
when we come back on the Lashing Out podcast on the Nittany Great. Welcome back to the third and final segment of the Lashing Out Podcast and Nittany Sports Now Network. I'm Jared. They're Joe and Kevin. Listen, it was not just Penn State that had a dominant day, but they probably had the easiest victory, uh, though James Franklin would argue that every victory is very difficult, and rightfully so. But around the Big Ten, or in the, in the top 25, let's start with our friends at Michigan. Coming into Beaver Stadium this Saturday, went they hosted Purdue in a primetime game. They won 41-13, which is the most amount of points they've given up all year. Which, again, you know, you take that with a grain of salt because they played East Carolina, UNLV, Bowling Green, Rutgers, Nebraska, Minnesota, Indiana, Michigan State, and Purdue. Yeah. All right? That's not a uh, murderer's row type of lineup, but – and even if you do, even if you don't know what's coming, that's that's still not an, an easy or that's still not a hard schedule. But again, they come into to Happy Valley, and we'll talk a little bit more later in the week when we preview the the game. But man, this could be something hilarious for James Franklin to be a national hero if Penn State beats Michigan on Saturday. Even though we don't know what's going to happen with Michigan, they might not even be allowed to travel. It might Things not be are going Jim Harbaugh crazy. on the sideline. That's right. So anything can, anything is going to be possible with that. But man, it this is a game that everybody is going to have eyes on. Yeah, and JJ McCarthy zero touchdown passes yesterday. I believe Blake Corum had four on the ground for Michigan. So something to watch for. Uh, Michigan was also not very effective running the ball. Uh, averaged just over three yards a carry, and there's a 44-yard tote in there uh, skewing their average up. Ohio State trailed Rutgers at halftime yesterday. Games are won in the second half, Kevin. Games, I mean, you win the, you win the game when uh, the fourth quarter hits 0-0-0-0, um, but uh, concerning. So it just shows, like, it's kind of just really makes you frustrated. Of Like, man, the Penn State even had an ounce of offense two weeks yeah. ago. What, what what could have been if Rutgers can be leading in halftime there? Uh, Florida State almost struggled or struggled a little bit with, with Pittsburgh losing a first place vote this week. About there's time. there's nothing I love more. There's absolutely nothing I love more than Pat Narduzzi and playing to his competition because they either play lights out football against ranked teams that are, in, that are really are supposed to be really good or they play just absolutely dog shit football against teams that they should probably beat. And that is Pat Narduzzi in a nutshell. And I, I absolutely love it, but there, there were a lot of good games, um, a lot of close games, dangerous games. I think, you know, James Franklin has mentioned three times in the last three weeks about teams who don't, who lose when they're not supposed to. Right. You know, you look at games around the, the country, Texas and Kansas State went to overtime before Texas won. Um, Ole Miss won by three over Texas A&M. Uh, they're the number 10 ranked team in the country. And Texas A&M, they just paid Jimbo Fisher an absolute boatload of cash to lose four or five games every year. Um, then you had Clemson took down the mighty Fighting Irish. They were about due for one. Um, 
stocks are up. If you're if you're Dabo Swinney, he told the fans after that. Um, Tennessee took down UConn. That was pretty easy. Um, Utah dismantled the Sun Devils, fifty-five to three. The Pac-12, man, I I love the Pac-12. It is going to self-implode, and I am here for it. Yeah, and he, to your comment on Narduzzi, Jared, that, that's pit football in general. That's how it was before Narduzzi got there. That's how it's probably going to be after. Um, it's definitely uh, – that fits Narduzzi perfectly, but for whatever reason, over the past – oh, man, probably going back to uh, the 13-9 game in 2007, that, that's just what Pitt does, and I don't know why. But, yeah, talking about Franklin's comments, which – He's been saying for so long how winning is not to be taken for granted. And he is right, but I can kind of see both sides of the coin. We were talking about this amongst ourselves in the GM. Like, yes, Franklin has every right to be pissed off that he is a very good football coach who wins more than most coaches do, and there's a lot of people out there that frankly think the guy's a bum. That would uh, get to anybody, and I fully empathize with Franklin about that. At the same time... You know, when you're playing so many teams that, frankly, you're way better than, at least two touchdowns better than, yeah, it's. I think it's only natural for people to start to take that for granted a little bit. I think in talking about what Franklin said yesterday, uh, which basically kind of rehashes what he was, what he's been saying for the better part of the last two years, you know, the players kind of apply to this too, because the question he was asked was in reference to a quote by KJ Winston about how Penn State didn't play Penn State football against Indiana. His first response to that quote was, I disagree with that. Um, so I think Franklin, what, and what he said, people were going to see it as him taking a shot at the media or taking a shot at the fans. And that might've been part of it, but I think Franklin wants to put an emphasis on the players and the people in that last building, which he specifically mentioned the last building, he wants those people not to take winning for granted either. So it's not limited to people like us, people like fans, people like national media. Franklin is concerned that the guys in that room are going to appreciate how good Penn State football is. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, layers to that. Uh, But as I wrote in my column, you beat Michigan, no one's taking that for granted. No, and uh, yeah. two two programs that took winning for granted that I called that were going to lose. Arizona upset UCLA at home. Kansas State, they should have won that game in OT, or they had a chance to. They went for the win in the end of the first OT. Love that. Um, and the other one, what was the other one I had? Jeez Louise, I just had it. Oklahoma. Oklahoma over, yeah, Oklahoma State over Oklahoma. I called that one as well, so. Those teams take winning for granted. Oklahoma's now dropped two games that they should have won, and you can't be losing rivalry games in which you're favored in. Franklin loses the, rivalry games that he's not favored in. You don't exactly. want to lose rivalry games that you're favored in. If you have a three-point, four-point, five-point spread in Vegas, you can't be losing that game. And Oklahoma's done that twice. Franklin doesn't do that. It's setting up really, really nicely for an Oklahoma versus USC Alamo Bowl. And I'm absolutely 100% on board for that. But James Franklin is right. Like, it, it's such, it's to look at, you have to look at James Franklin. What he inherited was a disaster. And that's not his fault. But he went seven and six, seven and six. 
then since that, since 2016, 11 and 3, 11 and 2, 9 and 4, 11 and 2, 2020 is 4 and 5, 2021, 7 and 6, 11 and 2, 8 and 1. You take out those two years where they just didn't play great football in 2020 and 2021, where they were, I, I, you don't want to make excuses, but COVID, COVID was what really disrupted Penn State football in 2019 or in 2020 and 21. But again, he's winning games that he's supposed to win. It's just, he's not getting to that next level. And of course, yeah, he mentioned going from great to elite. Well, going to elite is not easy. It is very hard to win, but it's harder to win and stay there. You know, you look at teams like air force, air force goes out and loses by 20 points to army and they're at home. No, Georgia struggled against Missouri. They only won by nine. Florida State and Pitt, right? Now, that's Florida State's playing above the Mason-Dixon line, which is rare. But you have Bedlam. Oklahoma State goes in and beats Oklahoma. You know, Louisville handles Virginia Tech. Tulane struggles against East Carolina, 13-10. Oregon dismantled Cal. Kansas only won by seven over Iowa State. You know, obviously Michigan did what they did, and then there was absolutely zero defense in the Washington-USC game. And I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, Caleb Williams talked. He, he dropped the LOL on um, on Max Dugan last yeah. last year about TCU and about showing emotions and whatever. And, and there was an image or video of Caleb Williams sobbing. Um, and I listen. I would cry too if my defense gave up fifty two points. But at the same time, man, you got to just be able to to compose yourself. I, I I know it's unfortunate for Caleb Williams. He is not the problem um, at USC. The problem is Lincoln Riley. They fired Alex Grinch. But, I mean, Caleb Williams, he threw 27-35, 312, and three touchdowns. That's typically going to win you nine time, nine games out of ten. But when your defense gives up 199 yards on the ground before contact, you're not going to win very many games. Yeah. And the, the elite thing is the problem is the college football playoff. There's four teams every year who get considered – elite no other team outside of that top four is winning 10 11 12 games a year besides penn state lsu's only made the playoff once granted they won the national championship that year they've made it once they went down into ambiguity for a few years now they're starting to come back does penn state want to be michigan state no that program's a dumpster fire oklahoma no you don't want to be oklahoma either cincinnati they got there because they're undefeated with Desmond Ritter. Those are the teams besides Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan. Or do you want to be TCU that lost, that's lost five games this year after making the playoff? Penn State wins, what, 11 games last year, 12 games last year, win the Rose Bowl, and are looking at probably having a chance to win 11 or 12 games this year as well. It's just absolute consistency year after year. It just sucks because they have to play two teams who have been to the playoff multiple times the sec alabama and georgia they're in different conferences they don't play each other every year the big 10 is the only one where you have three teams every year who are vying for one of those four spots and the problem is is penn state's been on the short end of the stick every single time of those we could argue they should have made it in 2016 a lot of people do argue they should have made it in 2016 and had franklin made the playoff in 2016 i don't think that team wins at all but 
then you wouldn't be able to say he didn't make the playoff because he did. Then if that happens, the only thing you could say about James Franklin is that he never won a national championship. And that that's literally the only thing you could say. So and, and yeah, not many I, people I, have recently. It's been the no. same same cats every year. Yeah, and I get you want to beat Ohio State occasionally. One and nine is not good enough. The record against Michigan is not good enough. And yeah, I think Franklin deserves criticism for that, but all coaches deserve criticism for something. And I think relative to what most coaches deserve to get criticized for, falling short against those teams. By the way, I mentioned this in my column, Joe Paterno's record combined against Ohio State and Michigan, 11 and 26. So, yeah. This isn't just a James Franklin problem. This is just what Penn State's been. And, yeah, it's more than reasonable to want Penn State to flip the narrative. But relative to so many other programs and so many other coaches, Franklin's right. It's hard to be much better than what Penn State's been. Not a lot of teams have been. They're a, they're a winner. There are two losses away almost every year from being better, right, from being undefeated. And those two losses are typically the same teams. And I think that's the frustration with James Franklin. It's not that he's losing. Like 11-1, and 10-2, and two, those are great years on the outside. But when you dive into it and it's the same situation, it's being up. Or, or or close against those teams. Now, Michigan has handled them easily, and we talked about this earlier, where they Michigan absolutely throttled Penn State on the ground and really, really fractured that defense last year. They sold out to stop that this year. They they bulked up. They did everything that they could. Now we're going to see if, it, if what they did matters on Saturday. But, but you're right. It, it is difficult. James Franklin is right. It is difficult to win. But it's also difficult to get to that next level. It's it, it's all it's all crazy because a, a twelve team playoff they make it probably almost every year other than twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. But again, it's just the same thing. It's the same shit, different day. But for right now, and and this is my favorite. It's who's going to be better, right? Wisconsin, or I'm sorry, Nebraska thought they could go get better than Bo Pelini. Bo Pelini was making Nebraska football competent, and that backfired. And you they know, did that with Frank Solich years earlier. Nebraska did that twice. Right. You know, these teams don't understand, or maybe they do, right? You know, you look at USC and Lincoln Riley, and I think that that experiment isn't going very well either. You know, and that's it's USC. That should be a, a, a factory for, for California football. But, you know, maybe it helps if you play defense. But I don't know. I've only coached and played and whatever. But, again, it's it's going out and taking care of business. More often than not, James Franklin and Penn State do that. But when they don't do it, it's against the same teams. And it just so happens they're in the same division in the same conference. And and the SEC doesn't self-destruct like that. And I think that's what why we see so much success on the SEC. It would be a hell of a lot different. If, if Georgia and Alabama played every year, if Clemson was in the SEC or Clemson or or, or whatever, but that's why you're you're seeing Ohio State or, or Michigan at the top because their one loss comes to each other rather than two losses to a, to a Penn State and, and one one or the other. So I mean, it, it's so we interesting, right? You know, we look at Alabama as everybody wants to play Alabama to see where they're at. But even they're showing that they're vulnerable. And, and, and the college football, you know, market, what it is now, it is very interesting because it's only going to be uh, – it's only going to get a little bit more strange. I mean, we're, we're going to see the outcome of what happens at Michigan. 
but the NIL stuff isn't going away anytime soon. And I think that's something that we have to kind of pay attention to as well moving forward. Yeah. And the SEC has the advantage of Alabama loses to Georgia the week before the SEC championship game. They get the rematch. If if you're Penn State, you lose to Michigan on the road at Michigan. You just get throttled on the road. You don't have the chance to meet them in Indy the next week and re- have a have a game of redemption. If you're undefeated going to that game, you have 60 minutes to blow your season. Alabama gets 120 minutes. If they beat Georgia, they beat Georgia, and they say, oh, we'll do it again next week. But if they lose to Georgia on the road, it's no sweat. It's it just there's not as much pressure. It's the beauty of the SEC West not or the SEC East not being that good because Florida's been in ambiguity for however many years since Urban Meyer left. So, yeah, it's the way the conference is, struck, is structured. Luckily, they're going away from the division. So you potentially do have that redemption game. And I think, I think once you kind of take some of that pressure off and, you know, we're up with nine minutes to go against Ohio State. Oh, let's not turn the ball over three times in the last nine minutes and ruin the season because, oh, if we lose this game, like potentially we could see him again later in the season. I think just the thought process of all of that, it it has to help. And I'm not trying to make excuses. And uh, let me tell you, I work with a bunch of people who went to Ohio State. I know a bunch of people who went to Ohio State, and it's really freaking annoying. They just rub it in our face every year that Penn State loses to Ohio State. It's awful. I got a, the only thing I have to fall back on is 2016. And I had a broken nose and concussion for that game for, from a prior sports injury. So like, couldn't even really enjoy the game. I was, my head was splitting. My face was black and blue. Like that's my last memory of Penn state beating Ohio state. And I, I hate it. I was there. I enjoyed it. I hate it. Like I hate it. I was that in that's the elevator the when the block six happens. That's unfortunate. Ooh. I was, fr- I was oh, front row. I made ESPN. Oh. I was on there. I was on ESPN for that one, but it's the 12 team playoff is is the forbidden fruit and until we get there and we'll see what happens there but Franklin would have made it five of the last six seasons or something five of the last seven and that's Alabama numbers that's Ohio State numbers and if you look at the top 12 from the last seven seasons I don't think many other teams are making it five times either so the, the thing is there for for Franklin and Penn State they're not at the right now they're not to one two three four they're in the five to ten area and five really five to eight or, or whatever, and that's what sucks, right? They're, they're right there. They are so close to breaking through. But again, they just haven't. And I think that's the that's one of those things, right? You know, that's kind of why you play the game. That's what you need to figure out. But and we're, we're beginning to wrap things up here. But any parting shots from you gentlemen before we say goodbye on this one? Say goodbye for one, Wednesday. Um... Yeah, I'll just sorry sorry to cut you off. I, I just wanted to say uh two people who I think could uh, go a long way to proving themselves Saturday are one of them is a coach that is on the field and one of them is a coach that's also on the field but isn't um a position coach. The first is Deion Barnes because last season we saw what Michigan did to Penn State's defensive line. And I don't I don't want to say John Scott Jr. did a bad job coaching. He definitely didn't. There's a reason he's in the NFL, but uh, you know, the defensive line is going to be a big storyline for this Michigan game. Deion Barnes is running the defensive line and doing one hell of a job in year one. And this is his biggest test so far. And we'll see what he does with it. The other guy, Chuck Losey, the strength coach. Uh, Jared, you mentioned the Penn State's bulked up. They definitely have. You can see it on the uh, website looking at the roster um, of guys. You have even the guys that aren't playing very much. Jordan Vandenberg um, is an absolute beast. And, 
a lot of people on that defensive line have gotten bigger. James Franklin said in that postgame presser, everybody thinks they're Aaron Donald, that famous quote, wanted them to get bigger on both fronts. Uh, the defensive line definitely at the head of that, and they've gotten bigger. And Chuck Losey has been uh, doing his job uh, to get Penn State uh, ready physically. So, yeah, Dion Barnes, the position coach, Chuck Losey, strength coach. Um, I think if Penn State beats Michigan and handles the run, uh, those are two guys that will deserve their flowers for sure. That's a pretty good point, Joe. I, you know, people, there wasn't a drop off, and there haven't, there hasn't really been a drop off between coaches. You know, Sean Spencer went to, to the NFL. Then you, you know, John Scott Jr. and and now Dion Barnes, and Barnes has been, he's been really, really good at, at developing those guys, and he was good even as a GA. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't hear very many GAs get raved about like he did, but the the guy that I'm that are that's going to have all eyes on him. There are three guys, Danny O'Brien, Mike Yersich, and Drew Aller. Those are the three guys. They're all involved in the quarterbacks and the offense. It flows through them. They need to play and, and game plan to get guys open like Cephas. You know, you don't need all the gimmicks, but you just got to be able to play the game. And it'll be interesting to see how Michigan handles this game. They've got a lot of scrutiny going around their program. That, that one, that can't be understated. There's a very good chance that by the time you're listening to this, something has been decided about Harbaugh. Maybe he's got a new pair of khakis. Maybe he's sleeping over at another recruit's house. I'm not quite sure. Or maybe he'll even be suspended indefinitely, which is which Twitter seems to think is coming next. But at the at the end of the day, Penn State's got to win this game. They've got to beat Michigan. They've handled their business in eight out of nine games. They need to handle business here. and And if they do... They start turning turning heads around, and James Franklin stops having to answer his, or say, "Oh, it's so hard to win." It is, and it is. But the ESPN is projected; they have a 50.7 chance to beat um, Michigan. It's only I've I've seen this spread a couple different places, uh, and it's ranged from Michigan's uh, they're four and a half to six and a half point favorites, which I think is fair. Um, but again, this is Michigan's first challenge of the season. On the field, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I'll save all of my parting shots for Wednesday, but before we go, I'll try to get you the most up-to-date. Nope, I'm not going to be able to get it. I was going to get you the most up-to-date spread, but Vandal's messing me up. It'll it'll change nine times between now and then, but as we end this for Kevin Quigley and Joe Smeltzer, this has been Jared Prugar on the Lashing Out Podcast. We thank you as always for listening. Please check us out on YouTube, Twitter, wherever you've listened to your podcasts and watch them. We'll catch you again next week.